Welcome to the Sleep Science Pod, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton. I'm an academic psychologist and the director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting that all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. So far throughout this podcast, we have assessed our sleep quality and quantity, recognising that whilst we might be totalling a decent number of hours of sleep over the course of a 24-hour period, that sleep still might be disturbed with interruptions, whether from our own inability to sleep or something else like young children needing us or needing to get up in the night to go to the toilet. What's more, sometimes we sleep at less than ideal times of the day or night to maximise sleep quality, meaning that sleep misaligns with our own circadian rhythms. We also know pretty well by now that a lot of sleep disturbances result from difficulties with switching off mentally or feeling sufficiently relaxed to present optimal conditions for sleeping. That may happen when you're trying to go to sleep each night, and or if you wake in the night and then can't get back to sleep. Each of these challenges with sleep may be experienced as occasional or mild disruptions, or they may be persistent and problematic. Either way, there are a series of questions that we can ask ourselves to help determine the severity of the problem and whether there's anything we, or someone else, can do about them. Firstly, let's try to monitor the regularity of these complaints. How often do they occur? Does anything predictable precede them? Are you struggling to switch off every Sunday night, for instance, ahead of a new working week because you might be uptight with worry? And similarly, do you regularly sleep better after, perhaps, an evening bath or an earlier meal? Keeping a diary, and sometimes a yawn diary too, as we discussed in the last episode, can help to shed light on some of these things. Secondly, how impaired are you by these issues? Do your sleep patterns actually cause some kind of effect on your daily function? This one is harder to monitor, admittedly, because you need to be able to compare your behaviour following poor sleep to your behaviour following good sleep. Try doing that if your sleep is varied, otherwise it might be hard. It's also tricky because, as we've said before, when you are sleep deprived, you're pretty rubbish at identifying how much sleep you've had, and then likely how you feel during the day as well. Sometimes people who don't get enough sleep think that they are fine in the day, when it's likely that they could be functioning far better if they slept more. But equally, sometimes people think that they're not sleeping sufficiently, and that their daytime function is impaired, when actually they're sleeping just fine, they've just started worrying about their sleep. This isn't unusual. In fact, some people worry so much about their sleep that it can lead to difficulties with getting to sleep. Professor Anika Norell-Clark conducted a study in Norway in 2014 entitled Cognito Ego Insomnis, demonstrating how some people worried so much about their sleep that it led to measurable problems with their sleep. This has since been documented widely across a number of studies in a number of countries and has been described as an ironic process of mental control where you try not to think of something, but in doing so, you have to think about what you don't want to think of, in this case, sleep. 
So if I tell you not to think of a white bear, you will have to think of a white bear just to stop thinking of it. But this is more than just a cognitive demand. It's an emotional one too, because there's worry involved. Unsurprisingly, the people who worry about their sleep often worry about a whole load of other things too. So in this case, could your sleep troubles really be caused by poor sleep or perhaps by low level anxiety? With sleep problems being associated with countless physical and mental health issues, it's almost impossible to determine whether the problem is with sleep or with something else. Some sleep problems are clear. For instance, sleep apnea is a disease in which people stop breathing for a few seconds at a time during sleep. It's caused by respiratory airways being pressured and being blocked when in certain positions. There are some common predictors of this and some effective treatments too. In the case of apnea, sleep is affected by an underlying respiratory issue. So sleep isn't the problem or cause, but it's badly affected because people need to gasp or jolt for breath, waking themselves up. As such, apnea is often identified by people who struggle to stay awake in the day because they're sleeping so poorly at night. It's not that easily identified, even with NHS Choices advice stating that you might need to be referred to a specialist sleep clinic for diagnosis. However, the common presentation of symptoms means that this usually isn't required. In this case, deal with the respiratory issues and deal with the sleep. In other cases, like with the anxieties around not sleeping enough, the problem may well be an underlying anxiety rather than not sleeping too well. This is more complicated though when it affects your sleep, which we know can then make you feel more likely to be anxious creating a vicious cycle of worsening anxieties and sleep. So long as the anxiety isn't really debilitating, practising good sleep hygiene could help with reducing the anxiety a little by improving sleep, even if sleep isn't the main underlying problem. But if the anxieties are really troubling, then of course they need to be considered too. We're hearing a lot about long COVID at the moment, and one of the many symptoms of that is post-viral fatigue. Again, that may bring about a sleep problem when a problem with sleep wasn't really the core or underlying concern. Nevertheless, there may be some lifestyle factors to do with sleep that can help you cope with that. Seeing a GP can be a good starting point. Do remember though that GPs are great at looking at the whole range of symptoms and recognising common ones. They may be able to refer you on to various places for support. But GPs are also primarily in the business of diagnosing and then providing drug treatments. Very rarely are GPs actually trained in dealing with sleep problems, mild or otherwise. So if you talk about having problems with your sleep, they may be inclined to consider offering you sleeping pills, which we know have some strong side effects and can be pretty addictive too. So if there are ways of dealing with sleep problems in non-pharmacological ways, that's probably the best thing to do. Part of considering best treatments might also involve reflecting on those issues of severity and impact on other aspects of your functioning. Do you need drug treatments? Perhaps, but if not, it might be a good idea to try other treatment methods first too. There are some excellent and effective treatments available. We'll consider CBTI or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia in a little while. It's hard to identify at what point the normal sleep problems become abnormal or really problematic. As a psychologist, this is something that we discuss with our students a lot. Some behaviours, like not sleeping too well, may be normal in terms of being pretty common, but 
they might be dysfunctional, perhaps even dangerous if they affect your safety behind the wheel or when operating machinery. Poor sleep might also start being a mild problem, but then be, become a habit for whatever reason, whether due to lifestyle factors or underlying health issues, and then they worsen as a result, becoming really quite serious. It can sometimes help to identify the patterns around your sleeping routines if you think at what point your troubled sleep began. Did anything happen in your life at that point? Was there a change in routine with a new job or something that started really worrying you? Was it accompanied by other health changes too? So what if you simply struggle with your sleep so much that you just can't sleep enough? Perhaps you can recognise that there were worries or a depression maybe that accompanied the start of your poor sleep, but now it's just the sleep that's a problem. Maybe you simply can't get to sleep at night. When the sleeping problems or insomnia last for longer than three months, this becomes long-term insomnia and really requires some attention. Most insomnia, short or long-term, improves with changing your sleep habits. The NHS treatments will now direct you to complete a brief online survey of your sleep via a programme called Sleepio, which is led by Professor Colin Espy at the University of Oxford. A link to Sleepio can be found in this episode's description and it requests some information about your lifestyle, your sleep habits and challenges with sleep and it takes about 10 minutes to complete. It's then analysed and presents you with an assessment of your sleep behaviours and habits. Then you're able to engage with an online cognitive behavioural therapy programme for insomnia, CBTI, if you want to. And that's been demonstrated to improve sleep effectively relative to both drug treatments and controls with no intervention. The evidence for that is clear and promising. CBT is a means of identifying your behaviours and your thoughts associated with those to help you make sense of your patterns of behaving. Once you recognise how you tend to respond and why, you can then consider changing some of your thoughts around your behaviours, which in turn help with the behaviour change. So just being told to sleep better isn't the same as believing that you need to improve your sleep. The latter is going to be much more effective. There are different kinds of insomnia to consider and then to treat. The International Classification of Sleep Disorders, or ICSD3, which is the most current version updated in 2014, recognises that sleep troubles can be brought on by a range of things. Insomnia is the general term, as we know, and covers the broadest and most common type of behaviours, which we are most likely able to treat by focusing on sleep and sleep hygiene. But in addition to those, there's also sleep-related breathing disorders like apnea, which we discussed earlier, and snoring too. There are central disorders of hypersomnolence, including issues like sleepwalking and balance. There are sleep-wake circadian cycle disorders, parasomnias and sleep-related movement disorders. Issues with balance might be caused by infections of other health issues, while sleepwalking may be relatively common in children and sometimes helping with a sleep hygiene schedule may help to reduce sleepwalking or sleep talking too. But in adults, they may need further specialist input. Sleep-wake circadian disorders refer to issues with the timing or regulation of sleep cycles and possibly other natural cycles too, like hunger or temperature regulation. Parasomnias cover a range of disorders, including persistent nightmares, night terrors, which are very much like nightmares, but occur in non-REM sleep, and so typically earlier in the night and when the sleeper is actually very deeply asleep. Each can also cause considerable distress to those that you live with, particularly if you share a bed with them. Something like persistent snoring can perhaps cause even more bother for the bed partner than the snorer. 
Each of these sleep issues involve problems with getting to sleep, staying asleep, sleep duration, so how long you're asleep for, or sleep quality. So insomnia then can be widespread and varied. At least one third of adults in the UK and US report that they have troubles with their sleep at any one time. Studies across a range of countries indicate that we may be sleeping less now on the whole than we used to, though we don't know how much of a problem that really is because it's really quite difficult to collect reliable large-scale data on so many associated behaviours. Maybe we're just sleeping more efficiently these days. However, with an increasing reliance on alarms to wake us up and being surrounded by that tempting blue light emitting technology, which adds to that inability to switch off, perhaps we really are more likely to suffer from insomnia now than ever before. Numerous scholars have tried to explore the incidence of insomnia, as well as factors that relate to it. So I spoke to Dr Jack Barton, who has a PhD in sleep science from the University of Manchester, and he's currently a science writer. And we had a conversation about his own sleep and his understanding of sleep disorders in the community. Uh, how have you uh, become interested in sleep? Um, so for me, it's something I guess all of us are to a certain extent. Um, but definitely when I was younger, I was interested in the sort of strange side of things, the psychology. So how do we perhaps experience things that aren't there, the sort of hallucinations, more psychosis-like experiences. And sleep is one of those ones that keeps coming back colloquially, these experiences really. Um, so for me, when there was a chance to study a PhD in exactly that, I jumped at the opportunity. And from that, it's just expanded into all the other areas other than just strange experiences. So could you tell us about your own research in that case? Yeah, so, so my stuff was trying to understand people who might be at risk rather than already experiencing clinical disorder. Um, but other people within our research group, um, you know, within the UK and the US as well, uh, I've also tried to understand within these you know, clinical groups as well, and just trying to understand actually if we intervene, can we see any improvements in say hallucinations and paranoia, which there's some evidence that we do, or if we track people over weeks, months, etc., do we see that these problems in sleep precede a worsening of these symptoms? And again, there seems to be some evidence to suggest that's the case. So at what point does that normal bad day situation turn into something clinically relevant? Um, I guess this is something that, at least from my research and from other research, we're not quite sure where that tipping point really is. Um, I mean, uh, individuals that we were studying, there were rates um, relatively smallish of insomnia, particularly for that that final sleep deprivation study. Um, you know, and that's when we'd say someone needs to um, access help, obviously, to help those problems. Uh, but in terms of saying, if you get this many hours lack less sleep over this many weeks than you'll experience, say, psychosis symptoms. I don't think really we can say that. And, you know, also predisposition to these things, you know, if you are have family members that also experience these things or you've experienced them beforehand, then of course sleeping less or struggling with sleep in general might make them more likely to occur. Um, but again, it's it's kind of hard to say this is this is something you should get, otherwise it'd be a problem. I mean we can sort of link back to, you know, the recommendations for the amount of sleep, say seven to nine hours. Uh, and encourage that, um, but shy of that, I'd be cautious about about making any definite conclusions on it. Yeah, I can understand. So we've certainly seen in other episodes how sleep isn't one clear 
clean predictor of health or, or vice versa but clearly there are lots of different interacting factors and it's quite difficult to separate them out but what other kind of sleep disorders did you come across in your research so other ones that seem particularly pertinent to say paranoid hallucinations were um, REM sleep behavior disorder the hallucination not hallucinations uh, nightmares nightmare disorders was a big one that at the time was steadily getting more traction as you know particularly being linked to, to paranoia um, but again not as much research had been done on it more recently there's more clinical research that's been done that's linked the experience of nightmares to, to say psychosis um, but again it's about separating those out you know what is it specifically about nightmares that might be linked is it the frequency of them the stress of them you know what's powering what i suppose is the key one uh, another one is and again when we talk about sleep and our you know tracking of sleep and what's the right amount we talk about an amount we don't really think so much about well, when are you sleeping and you know is that fragmented is it that you wake up constantly throughout the night um so other facts and one other thing within that review that i looked at was the known circadian rhythm disorders so this is the notion that you know, you might get the right amount of sleep, but you want to do it at completely the inappropriate times, you know, to, to working, to functioning. And what we found was that there was a very obvious lack of research within this, at least in the, the areas that I was looking at. Um, stuff within clinical populations seems to hint that within psychosis and perhaps other mental health disorders, um, there are problems in terms of duration and, you know, how well you can sleep throughout the night but also your pattern of sleep seems to almost fluctuate a little bit that the patterning seems to break down and you get this thing called free running whereby you'll just keep delaying that means sleeping later and later and later uh, and that usual patterning that we can rely on just goes out the window you know there was a case study in 2012 I think, or case series and you could see it you could just see the time a person goes to sleep just get later and later um, to experience that must have been very difficult and you can understand why even if it's not causing the symptoms say of psychosis would definitely be very distressing do you think we can improve sleep and if so do you think we can do that to the point where we might be able to really reduce some of these psychotic and other mental health symptoms um yes so there are a bunch of different things we can do to help improve, say, if someone appears to the GP or their doctor saying, I'm struggling with sleep, you know, we can do a lot of different things to help that individual out. You know, the, the obvious and the easiest route um, is through sleep medication. So stuff that you can take that helps you drift off um, and continue to do so for as long as you take the medication. There are problems with that. And, you know, as, for many, that's seen as very much a quick fix. Um, but in terms of more long-term approaches to stuff like this, you know, I, I suppose if, you do a quick Google search, you'll get stuff that gives you good sleep hygiene tips. Um, but something that's perhaps more grounded uh, and more involved would be perhaps using something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Now, this is a psychological treatment that is available and targets in part sleep hygiene, but other factors as well to help sort of change your relationship with sleep uh, and take some of the things you might be struggling with um, that are very difficult to perhaps do it by yourself. Uh, and put strategies in place to actually help you get a good night's sleep. So for example, if you're struggling with insomnia, you might find that you go to bed at say 11, you have fitful sleep throughout the night, you might sleep for periods and wake up again, sleep for periods and wake up, uh, and you wake up in the morning say 
usual sort of time because you've got to get up for work. One strategy is perhaps to go, okay, if you're not going to sleep well during that period, perhaps if we contract the period through something called sleep restriction, we can make it so you go to bed later, you wake up at the same time, so that sleep window is reduced, but also because of the increased propensity to sleep by going to bed later, um, over time, you find that an individual does sleep better during that window. They stop then associating sleep and the bedroom with struggling and you know, that arousal and worrying about being able to sleep. And then you can steadily increase it so they can sleep for longer as a result. Um, that's done alongside a bunch of other things. You know, I'm not saying quickly rush out uh, and make sure you go to bed later if you're struggling with sleep. Beyond that, maybe more exciting things for the future that we're still really at base level of. Um, is that maybe through targeted tones at certain parts of the sleep cycle, um, we can actually increase the sort of um, the quality of what you're getting from certain stages of sleep, essentially. Uh, it's something that's quite an experimental stage at this point, but it might help individuals who struggle with sleep or perhaps other things don't work for um, actually get good quality sleep during that period. But um, that's something that perhaps is a while off for any of us experiencing. It will be interesting to see what the future holds, I think. Um, Dr. Jack Barton, thank you very, very much for your insights. Thank you very much for having me. Jack showcased some fascinating associations between insomnia and mental health behaviours, such as hallucinations, which remind us that whilst poor sleep may be quite common, it's also a serious business, which can lead to severe consequences. With insomnia being widespread, and likely with the increasing uptake of wearable technology that claims to measure sleep patterns, there seems to be more talk of sleep than ever before. In some ways, this is a really good thing. I mean, I'm privileged to have the chance to create this podcast and to talk about something so fundamental to our lives. But we might be being bombarded and overwhelmed with information. Sometimes we just know what we should be doing and yet the problems continue. Or we don't have the facility to alter our routines to an ideal sleep perfect schedule because the kids break it up or the bedroom's just too noisy. What we don't want to do is add pressure to an already pressured system as that is really not going to create a nice relaxing environment conducive to sleeping well. You know yourself best. If you're worried, and you have the chance to do so, try talking to others about your sleep problems, if they know you well as well. Have they noticed any changes in your behaviour? Can they help to shed light on what might be happening to you? Is there anything that you can do at all to help yourself? CBTI is a helpful and effective treatment, now freely available to all via Sleepio. But even that can't make you sleep, only you can do that. But if you can't, just be kind to yourself. Yes, sleep is important and yes, we all need it, but relaxing will help you to feel better and consequently to sleep too. If you have concerns about your sleep or any associated behaviours like disordered breathing or sleep-related movements, do contact your GP. It's worth a chat. Good luck. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory. And until the next episode, sleep well.